Greetings and welcome to Fresh Text. Fresh Text is a weekly podcast when a couple pastor scholars dig into the Word of God using a seasonally appropriate scripture passage. We hope that it'll be enjoyable and edifying for all, and especially equipping for pastors or teachers who are working on sermons or lessons in the upcoming weeks. I'm your host, John Drury. I teach systematic theology and spiritual formation for Wesley Seminary and Indiana Wesleyan University. My guest this week is Aaron Perry. Aaron is a professor of Christian leadership and pastoral theology at Wesley Seminary alongside me and is a regular guest on the show, although not as regular as it used to be. He helped get this show started over two years ago now. And as the guest list has expanded, we maybe don't get to see him as often, but I'm so glad to have him back on the show this week to talk about Ephesians chapter 1, verses 3 through 14. Ephesians chapter 1, verses 3 through 14. Make sure to subscribe if you're not already, so you never miss an episode. And as you're listening, if you enjoy the show, hit the share button on your podcast player app of choice to pass on this show to others uh, through a private message or on social media or however else you'd like to get it out so they may benefit as well. Thanks for listening and enjoy this conversation with Aaron. Let's do this. Yeah, so Ephesians chapter 1, verses 3 through 14. Would you be uh, willing to grace us by reading the text? Sure. Sure. Thank you. Praise be to the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us in the heavenly realms with every spiritual blessing in Christ. For he chose us in him before the creation of the world to be holy and blameless in his sight. In love, he predestined us to be adopted as his sons through Jesus Christ, in accordance with his pleasure and will, to the praise of his glorious grace, which he has freely given us in the one he loves. In him, we have redemption through his blood, the forgiveness of sins, in accordance with the riches of God's grace that he lavished on us with all wisdom and understanding. And he made known to us the mystery of his will, according to his good pleasure, which he purposed in Christ to be put into effect when the times will have reached their fulfillment, to bring all things in heaven and on earth together under one head, even Christ. In him we were also chosen, having been predestined according to the plan of him who works out everything in conformity with the purpose of his will, in order that we, who were the first to hope in Christ, might be for the praise of his glory. And you also were included in Christ when you heard the word of truth, the gospel of your salvation. Having believed, you were marked in him with a seal, the promised Holy Spirit, who is a deposit guaranteeing our inheritance until the redemption of those who are God's possession, to the praise of his glory. There ends our reading, the word of God for the people of God. Thanks be to God. Let us pray. Father, we give you thanks for your eternal, mysterious plan that has been brought to a head in your Son, Jesus Christ, in His enfleshment, which we recall in the Christmas season, and the way that all your grace and goodness and glory are wrapped up and hidden in Him. And so with thankful hearts, we now ask that as we study this text before us, we would be guided by you led by you to see, to understand, 
to feel and to act in accordance with your word. We ask this all in the name of your son, Jesus Christ. Amen. Amen. All right. So what, uh, what grabs you as you read this text afresh today? I was out of breath. A few times the sentences are so long, like I'm coming to the end of my breath and I'm like, man, I got to push through here to have it sound all right. So there's some, there's some long sentences here. Yeah. This is some classic, uh, <laughs> Pauline monster sentences, right? <laughs> and it's always a tricky question in translation, whether to, to leave the sentences long to capture the breathless character of this opening moment where the words are kind of almost just spilling off his tongue and the logic of the claims kind of work as all subordinate, you know, it's a bunch of subordinate clauses linked back, you know, but at some, at a certain point you got to stick in a period there. You're just going to (laughs) completely lose an English reader. (laughs) Yeah. And there's a way that it all flows as praise, right? Starts with praise be to the God and father of our Lord Jesus Christ and then it flows into the actions that, that are warranting this praise. And it's clear that this is spilling out, overflowing of is from a, an attitude of praise. Yeah, you wouldn't, you know, if you got up on a, on a Sunday morning and, and read a text so fast that you couldn't pick up half of what was said, you'd be frustrated as a listener. But like, I mean, how many times am I singing along with a song and I'm kind of just into the beat and don't really pick up all the words, you know? Uh, but that's, you don't, that's not a complaint, you know, it might be to some, but I mean, for the most part, you understand that when you capture the musicality of something, the rhythm is as important as, you know, catching every single statement. Although we'll, we'll do our best to to pay attention to the details, but <laughs> I love that you said that was a great opening line, by the way, from you today. I was out of breath because <laughs> it, it's great because it's beautiful. It's like the breathlessness of that. I, I. I mean, I don't want to jump ahead too far, but I immediately want to say that one of the dangers of exegesis is that we could then dig into this so much that we, we've we slowed down and kind of understand the internal structure and content of this text, and that we'll forget the breathlessness by the time we're preaching. Whereas for most hearers, the breathlessness of it is going to be what they catch first. Yeah. So to kind of preserve that awareness for the whole hour today and to keep that in mind so that we don't lose track of it. That's just a sort of little thought. I'd just put a pin in the Bethless and say, Hey, let's not forget that feature, well, you know? Yeah. And that, and that being the experience of people who would have been hearing it. So they're going to hear somebody who's, who's preaching this or reading it. If, as I expect, Paul is using an amanuensis. So somebody's writing this for him as he's dictating it. There's like a, a feverish, there's gotta be a feverishness to that writing, even while they're mm-hmm. like, maybe like, you know, asking him to kind of, slow it down so we can at least get it written down if that's if that's the case right there's there's an experience to this text that i think we miss if we try to analyze it or try to put it under a microscope without being slammed by it in the first place Hmm. yeah i like that if we analyze it under a microscope without being slammed by it first so you're it sounds like you're allowing that we can analyze it a little bit but that needs to be always in a bracketed and framed by the the slamming, right? <laughs> yeah, and that, that's the humility of the text, right? That's that's the humility of – I mean, maybe you could say it's the humility of Paul to allow his words to be put onto page and to be sent around. Uh, he knows they're going to be reflected and copied and, and passed around. Like, there's going to be stuff done with these words. So, there's a certain amount of humility that he allows just to put them down on a page. 
but mm-hmm. it's still it's still run up against his experience with God that the the experience with God that is overflowing into this his own his own gratitude for being in Christ is what has this kind of paradoxical connection of humility and excitement eagerness i don't know i'm trying to think of the other, Boldness. The other word that's not not it's not it's not uh it's not the opposite of humility but it's certainly not quite the same that the kind of puts these things together that produces such a text yeah humility tracking, and, is that making sense I'm, it, oh, it's it making perfect sense i think it's making perfect sense and it's i mean i, I think i've mentioned this before but it's been a long time um i learned exegesis first from steve lennox i mean i, I learned it geeking out with my family growing up, but I didn't know it was called exegesis, right? Uh, so like formal exegesis, you could say, I learned from Steve Lennox, who's now president of Kingswood, who, you know, Steve, if you're listening, I, I want to get you on the show one of these days. Anyway, but one of the 10 steps in exegesis that he had, it was an early one, was a category called atmosphere, atmosphere. And it's this stuff that you're highlighting right now. And as a kind of more analytical personality myself, I'm an INTJ to talk Myers-Briggs for a moment. I remember that being the hardest one. I didn't understand it when he was teaching it, you know, and the, the longer I've spent time with texts, the more I've come to appreciate how crucial it is to attend to the atmosphere. And in an interesting way, the atmosphere links with some grammatical observations or some syntactical syntax matters. So... Most versions, even ones that stretch the text out, even the ones that try to make the sentences as long as possible, still are going to introduce a, a break at the end of six, verse six, and at the end of 10, sometimes, and at the end of 12. So I have one at the end of six and the one at the end of 12. Do you have periods there? Uh, six, yes. Uh, 10, yes. 12, yes. Okay. So what version are you using today, by the way? NIV. NIV. Okay. So it, it leans a little long with the sentences. Okay. Now I'm just Greek geek moment. I mean, even those periods could be eliminated in the original because after the period in seven and in 11 and in 13, you get it in him or in Christ. But just for funsies, it's not N outu, which would be in him. It's N ho, N ho, in whom. So it's it, strictly speaking, these are still subordinate clauses. So actually, so I, I hate that I just said the word actually. Well, actually, I don't mean it this in that kind of way because you got to, you got to translate it into actual English, but like 13 through 14 could be taken as one sentence. <laughs> At which point it's just ridiculous. And then there's like a whole other option, which is to take this as almost like poetry, Mm. which is it also can be read really slow and introduce a whole bunch of pauses. Mm. And I think both are legitimate. I think it's it's probably a bit of both. Do you know what I mean? Because I think it's these words just roll off the tongue because he's filled with praise, as you said, this kind of humility and hilarity, just because it has to be (laughs) – Alliterative to be true. Oh right. yeah. Yeah. <laughs> uh, but the, the humilitas and the hilaritas of just, just joy in the good news of the gospel. And, you know, it does roll off the tongue, but it also allows, again, not in a excessively analytical way, but in a kind of almost pleasurable way, a kind of slow poetic, 
you know, cause then you do, you do introduce those pauses and say, you know, you get to the end of six that has a bit of finality for a moment, you know, unto the praise of the glory of his grace with which he has graced us in the beloved in whom we have, right? You could pause and say in whom, and it works, you know? So I'm not saying like the, the, the period doesn't belong, but I am tempted by maybe a semicolon <laughs> just to indicate there is a pause here at the end of six and 10 and 12. But those pauses might be, again, logically, there's not a new thought starting in seven, but more a deepening in. So it's like each layer is sort of deepening in sort of another layer of the onion rather than, okay, we talked about. And, and this is going to be really important with preaching. It'd be very tempting for an expository preacher with an analytical mind, as you and I both have, to want to make the first couple verses about one thing and the next couple verses about another thing, right? But it's really not, I think, the syntax of this monster sentence invites us to see it as a an unfolding or a deepening, a, a digging deep into the well of this one word of blessing or praise yeah. from verse 3. Oh, man. You know, the, the next thing that, that strikes me in this, and it, it might be, I think it's a natural connection, is just the emphasis of being chosen, adopted, heirs, included, guarantee of inheritance, right? These, these, uh, these family, uh, familial words and this phenomenon of being chosen. I can't remember who I was having the conversation with. Uh, I do remember it was it was uh, Christine Pohl, so uh, former uh, professor at Asbury, now retired, done a lot of work on hospitality, and and one of the things that she was talking to us about as a classroom setting was the deep need that we have to be chosen, that there's a an existential need that we have to be to be chosen, and one of the things that she was pointing out was the the lack of choosingness that we have in our culture. So it's easy to form and break relationships uh, from very serious ones to very flippant ones, right? These are, these are formed and, and broken relatively, relatively uh, quickly. And she was saying there's, a, there's an aspect of something that, that is lost whenever we disconnect the, the sheer grace of choosing another and being uh, the one that is, is elect, right? To use another word that there's deep good that that does to our, our souls uh, whenever we have the experience of being chosen. And here Paul is ascribing that action to God. And as Wesleyans, we can feel a little bit uh, that sets us at, at odds a bit or not odds, but maybe sets us a little bit ill at ease, right? Like, like, man, what is it? What is it like God, God's choosing. But when you put it in the context of God's free act of choosing us, and the deep affirmation that that simply is and that has, you can see why it leads him to have such a reflection of praise and glory to God. Yeah. And if anybody was <laughs> chosen who was not choosing, but was chosen against his own choosing, it was a guy like Paul, right? One way of framing it is whether Paul's experience is sort of the exception or the, the paradigm. And, you know, I think many... In many Wesleyan Arminians are inclined to see Paul's kind of being dragged, kicking and screaming as more exceptional than paradigmatic. And then I think sometimes the mistake made in sort of hyper Augustinian traditions is to kind of make the Pauline, 
you know, absolute conversion against your will as the kind of paradigm, right? And there's probably the truth's probably <laughs> in some, you know, dialectical relation between the two. But I'm glad you highlighted the language of election and predestination it's, and choosing. It's very strong here. It's presented as something to be celebrated. Mm. And I think it's absolutely crucial for all of us to see the choosing of God. Perhaps it's secondarily a curious question. And one that stirs up maybe some anxiety about the nature of his choosing. But first and foremost, this is a something that we bless the name of the Lord for. Wow, we have been chosen. Yeah. Even elect is such fun word. I mean, we're recording this. This will drop during the Christmas season, but we're recording this uh, well in advance, uh, right as the election season is as finishing up. And you mentioned Christine Pohl talking about how our chosen relationships are not so permanent. I think another factor is we tend to, when we hear the word election, we think of politics we th- and we think of us choosing up, choosing our leaders and the notion of the leader, the Lord, <laughs> uh, God in this case, choosing down, choosing us, you know, and then linked back to what you said and the kind of permanence of that, that election and that being elected, being chosen, is just, I mean, this was the passage that in my own personal life was really central to my opening my heart to the notion that the doctrine of election is the sum of the gospel and is good news and it must be spoken of. Mm. Uh, and the Wesleyan Arminians don't have no doctrine of election. We have a different doctrine of election, but it's still a doctrine of election and God's choosing us and choosing to be for us and with us in Christ is the starting point. And there's only debate about the second step, right? <laughs> How that relates to our choosing, his choosing of us. Mm-hmm. Uh, there's no debate that the whole thing, that the center and start of the whole thing is Christ, in Christ, us being chosen by God, you know? Yeah, there's a there's a diagram that I find helpful when I've, a uh, class I teach in atonement is this, the the choice of humankind by God to lead in the creation and that that is reaffirmed in the election of Israel and that the election of Israel is reaffirmed in the election of Jesus. And then it expands out again. So it kind of forms this hourglass one, right? Like the election of Jesus is not to the exclusion of Israel. It's to the expansion then of uh, through Jesus to back to the whole world again, right? That, that there is not one. And, and I like how Paul says it. And maybe you could, we could talk a little bit about the, the grammar of it here, uh, but when when Paul says, "You also were included in Christ when you heard the word of truth, the gospel of your salvation, and having believed," so it's like this this hearing. Like if one is in the hearing, that's a sign that you're chosen, right? It's a, it's a sign that of, of you are you are part of those whom God is working to redeem. Just the the very nature of just being exposed to this is a sign that God is for you, right? And there's hardly a a, a lower bar that could be set, right? That. Um, just by being in the presence of this good word is a sign that God is gracious and is is including you in what he wants to do, right? So this kind of picture of of God's election of humankind reaffirmed in Israel, election of Israel reaffirmed in Jesus, and then expanded back out again of Israel and the church connected and then through whom he wants to reach the whole world. And it's like just over and again, God's free choice to choose to be good, to uh, be for uh, his creation and humankind in particular. Yeah, that's really beautiful. I, I can, I can visualize the hourglass. I hope our listeners can, you know, diagrams are really great radio, right? <laughs> Sorry, man. Uh, actually, I do it all the time. 
<laughs> well, I, actually, I think I think uh, I think I did that quite well, John. Actually, I I actually meant it. I I think it's very clear. You walked us through it. Well, that's great. I think that sets us up good uh, to come back and and keep digging in and zooming out. Uh, so let's take a quick break and and come back and keep working. And we're back. Welcome back to Fresh Text. I'm here with my guest, Aaron Perry. And we are taking a look at uh, Paul's letter to the Ephesians, verses 3 through 14. Verses 3 through 14. Now, Aaron, you introduced an interesting idea about this kind of hourglass. This, this, I actually had a teacher with a very similar, it wasn't an hourglass, but it had a very, the logic was very similar. He, and he, the title on his handout was The Logic of Election. Right. So that, that fits a little what you're getting at to link up that imagery. But what's so striking in this passage, and this isn't to, to contradict what you said, but a kind of, uh, a, a sort of to turn it on its side and look at it weird, look at it uh, subspecie eternitatis, right? Under the aspect of eternity, right? Try to look at it from the perspective of God, right? I mean, which is impossible to do, but it's, you get a sense of Paul doing that a little bit here. So feel free to laugh out loud when you see me. Using Latin like an idiot. Sorry, uh, <laughs> I, just, I just I was like like he expects me to know what that means. <laughs> I mean, anyway, I figured it out, but yeah. <laughs> oh, now, sorry. Now it's clear, John. Now, oh, now now I get it. Uh, yeah, so. Well, actually, John, uh, it's it's pronounced. <laughs> um, but kind of when I look at that hourglass askew, there are some clues in this text. That in some sense, from God's perspective, the story in some sense begins in the middle, even though from our perspective, it, like the hourglass works chronologically. God creates everything. God elects one nation from among those. God elects the one elect, the beloved, the Messiah. And then that spills out into the church as his body for the sake of the whole world, right? So, so that out, you know, kind of universal, particular, singular, back to the particular, to the universal. But there's some hints in here that that it's really all ex- an explosion out from the singular of Christ. When he says, who has blessed us in Christ or in the Messiah with every spiritual blessing, okay, even as he chose us in him before the foundation of the world. So the whole strategy is a eternal choosing before creating in Christ, not just all oh, choose humanity. And if they screw it up, then I'll supply this Messiah, right? right? For, from God's perspective, it's all flowing out from his beloved son, Jesus. And then he repeats it again in five. He predestined us for adoptions as sons through Jesus Christ. And there might be one more. Yeah, according to his purpose, right? This eternal purpose of God. I just think that's worth kind of highlighting that Absolutely. Paul's sort of hinting that from from God's point of view, it's just he just loves Jesus. And in Jesus, he loves Jesus' people, which is both Israel, the people from whom he comes, and his, the church, which is this engrafted guest in the house of Israel through him. But that that whole thing is for the sake of the whole world, right? So you can kind of pick up the, you can pick up the, uh, the hourglass right from the middle and kind of turn it on its side, you know, and kind of see it explode out from there. And then the words us in here become very interestingly ambiguous 
when when Paul says us, does he mean humans in general? Does he mean the Christian community? Does he mean the apostles? Because he switches to you at the end, plural you, talking to the Ephesians. So does he mean the the, the, the initial believers, the first believers? Or is he actually making some references to Israel here, right? We've received all these blessings, and so have you. Yeah. And, and I don't think we have to choose which reading we take. Man, I just went on a long lecture there. I'm so sorry, Aaron. But <laughs> I just wanted to pitch that little twist on, on your hourglass to see maybe. if it helps us see anything in the text. Well, maybe, maybe what I might do. I mean, so that is obviously grounded in he chose us in him before the creation of the world. Like that's – this is um, – this is difficult to render if you're thinking chronologically, right? Like, exactly. How do, you, how do you fit the chronology of it? So maybe what I would say is you could, you could diagram it out from, from left to right. So it's got that, that kind of long aspect to it. But then what mm-hmm. I might actually say is that's when you flip it to the hourglass and you narrow it all in. So nice. To God, this isn't stretched out over time. This is revealed to us over time. But to God, this is, this is always the very nature of who he is. That God is not doing something in this that he had kind of had to unfold or get himself to, to work up to or respond, right. respond in a way that, oh man, what am I going to do now? Like to God, this, <laughs> this is always the heart of God. And not only the heart of God, it's the very nature of God, right? Yeah. Uh, of choosing and love, loving the, the one whom he chooses. And, and that, that can start to form some Trinitarian thoughts in us, which Paul leads us to. I mean, Bingo. The whole, mm-hmm. the Holy Spirit is, is invoked and is brought in to help, um, you know, is part of this praise as it unfolds. But that might be how I would say, I was like, maybe, maybe I could start to draw this as a, a left to right kind of diagram that, that is like fleshed out over time, like a timeline. And then I could take, you could take it and flip it on its end. So it shows like all of this is happening in the eternity of God. It's stretched out for us over time because we can't experience it any other way. Mm-hmm. But for God, this is the eternal nature and heart of, God. Yeah, and the beauty is it still works chronologically, even as you flip yep. it up, because it is a hourglass. So time is being measured through wow. it. But what you can say is then when you turn on its side, is you say, before the sand is placed in and the timer started, God constructs the hourglass with mm-hmm. the center in mind. So the center is already in place before the time starts ticking, right? I feel like um, I feel like we have just solved some of uh, St. Augustine's paradoxes. <laughs> right? <laughs> Solved is an interesting word. Well, Augustine was so puzzled, but you know, you and I in 20 minutes have solved it. <laughs> uh, but the hourglass, yeah. Uh, Where's that humility, Aaron? <laughs> uh, it's, it's actually humilitas, John. Uh, actually. And now we're into the uh, hilaritas. <laughs> That was, um, but that really helps me. Like, and just like how I can conceive this getting fleshed out and then, and then tipping it. And then this being the structure and then the experience of, of God pouring himself. Maybe, and you can even say it like that, like the pouring of the sand through the hourglass, right? Is that this pouring mm-hmm. of God into the. Ooh, and that fits the verbiage here, the lavishing, the blessing yeah. us. Yeah, 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 yeah. You yeah. could do it as exegesis of this text in a way because, of course, if you're just reading the Bible straight through, you, you, it's going to have that chronological feel. So you have, in a way, it's wise to start that way and then to turn it on its head. I mean, you mentioned the, the doctrine of the Trinity. I mean, you know, the doctrine of Trinity gets formulated after the narrative has unfolded. And not even in the first century. It takes a few centuries to kind of, because in many ways, the doctrine of Trinity is kind of uniting this whole story into kind of one single 
complex claim about the life of God being independent for us and yet fully with and for us. Hmm. And, and the God who is with us is the God who God always was and is and will be the mystery of his will. Yeah. Oh, man. And I think that is so – I really think that's important because it's – it's. I think it's a growing temptation and has and has been a temptation from the very beginning of, of the early church to disconnect what God is doing now from what God has done in the past, right? Mm-hmm. To, to read the New Testament as though it's somehow a disconnect from the Old Testament rather than its perfect fulfillment in Christ. And for us to read that God is doing something now that God has never been doing before. But instead, how do we see this as the continuation of what God has always been doing from eternity? Yeah, I'm suddenly reminded, linked to that, Aaron. I'm suddenly, you could even make that as a, as a point that's worth highlighting. It requires a little alienation at first, but it's kind of worth it. You could take the us of verses three through 12 as at least at first glance. That us is not us. It's not you and me. It's not Gentiles. This, this, this is, this is the, the house of Israel or perhaps the remnant of the house of Israel, meaning those who have come to believe, right? This is the apostles. This is the, 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 the church, the foundation. Because then 13 becomes this beautiful twist, right? Because he says, yeah. Yeah. in whom also y'all, yeah. right? The audience of the letter. These Gentiles, you heard the word of truth, the gospel of your salvation, in which you also have believed in this promise, right? And the Spirit kind of kicks in here because the Spirit is the sign. As we see in the book of Acts, the Spirit is the sign of Gentile inclusion, right? Oh, Spirit falls on them. Okay, apparently God has decided to include them. So even the language of the Spirit fits that that would be linked to the mm. a sort of Gentile inclusion. Now, I, Now, if that's jarring to you, the thought that we're not a part of the us. Well, the whole point is that we are, but that that's a surprise. That's not an obvious. Yeah, it's and we maybe we maybe it's it's the it's a supersessionist habit of of most uh, of Christian thinking and preaching is to always think that all the us is us <laughs> instead of like n- rem- being constantly reminded that it's a surprise that we're part of the us. Usually, we're the you in the story, right? <laughs> we're the we're the Gentile Christian, the you who is surprised that the you is part of the us. Mm-hmm. So then, of course, from the point of view of verses 13 and 14, then you can go back and see actually all those us's do apply. And it makes me think of John 17, where he says, I do not pray for those. I do not pray for the world, but for those you have given me. And everything he goes on to say, he seems to be talking just about the 12. And then he makes this twist in verse 20. I do not ask for these alone, but also 20 of John 17 here. Sorry, I'm making a comparison. Not for these alone, but also for all those who will believe in me through their word. And he doesn't actually then introduce any new petitions. He actually ends up repeating some things that signal back. So John 17 has a similar pattern where it sounds like Jesus is like, I'm just praying for the 12. But then he reveals at the end, but everything I just prayed for them applies also to anybody who believes in them. And since verb believe appears here, it's like almost the exact same pattern, right? Of, of a, and it's the logic of election again, right? Or there was a term you used for it, the way of God's choosing or some cool phrase that you had of he works through the particular and then, but it's always including, but it's including through a particular. Yeah. 
yeah. rather than particularity as the the enemy of God's inclusion. It's yeah. the way of God's inclusion. Yeah. Right. And so therefore, the story of Israel has not been left behind in this at all. This is us being included in something much bigger than ourselves, yeah. which, you know. It, and it's such a antidote to, I'll call it a, a spiritual obsessive compulsive disorder, which is asking, have I done? <laughs> Am I? Did I? Do I? Right. And, and it's, it's an antidote to that. It's like, and it comes to that. It's like, yeah, you were included when you heard and you believed. And you're like, oh, like that's just the natural outflow of the good news that's been given to me. And, and, and the very fact that I'm hearing, oh, that's affirmation that God is doing something for me, that God has included me in this, in this choice. I remember I was listening to some lectures on Karl Barth one time and, the lecturer who was a, a pastor and he was teaching, teaching this to his, to his congregation. But, um, I can't remember if it was a, I think it was an illustration, but I can't, I can't remember. But the, the question was, well, what about the person who comes to the church and they belief is just not being formed in them? And the person was like, the, the lecturer was like, they should keep coming back. Right. <laughs> keep coming back. Keep putting yourself under the, under the hearing of these texts. And that might be one of the things that I would say to the person who it's not like you're like, I, I wrestle with doubt in my faith. I have anxiety and concern. Like, is this mine? Like, you can't just like flip the switch in your own mind and say like, oh, now I believe, right? I, oh, I just need to work really hard to get that mustard seed side of belief. No, you can't do that, but you can put yourself in a place where you're continuously hearing what this good news is. And through that, allow God to form faith within you so that it's, for, it's faith, not, not, forced from the top down, but it's faith that's organically built from the bottom up as one is putting themselves in place to hear good news like this. And then you can expand it out. Maybe this is sitting under preaching and the pastor being reminded that everything they say is about fostering belief in people who are in the congregation that day. And maybe you can put it about reading texts like this. So a person is, is going to be disciplined to say, yeah, I can't force beliefs in myself, but I can read Ephesians 1, 3 through 14 on a consistent basis and allow that to start to filter up from the, as the, as the word goes deeply into me and God allows that seed to grow up to fruition. I'm going to see the, the fruit uh, grow from the bottom up and start to filter up and see my feelings of anxiety change, maybe over time, but God is the one doing that, even while there's the opportunity to be placed within the hearing of words like this. Oh, man, that's that's really good, man. My grandfather would put it this way, uh, get under the spout where the grace comes out. <laughs> sure. Right, the, the means of grace. So attend to the places where God communicates his grace. You can't control when it comes, but you can be there and be present to it. Get under the spout where the grace comes out, you know, and you can't control when the spout's turned on and turned off, but you can be under it. And that's very Pauline because it says right here in verse 13, in whom you also, when you heard the word of truth, gospel of your salvation, and believed in him, right? So the hearing comes before believing. We think of Romans 10, where he says, how will they believe if they have not heard? And how will they hear unless someone preaches to them? And how will uh, there be a preacher unless they are sent, which brings us back to election, right? And election's almost always about sending, right? You know, it's about mission, right? It's about uh, choosing those who will go forth to bear the good news, right? Which was the original mission of Israel in the first place, right? To be the 
the the blessing to the nations you know well it, and even before that to the man and the woman be fruitful and multiply right yes they are they are sent they are sent into the world to with with mission and purpose in bringing things under the authority and order of God for God to be praised and God has simply reaffirmed that that is what's going to happen in Christ not only is that what's going to happen that's what has happened because Paul is already praising God uh, the Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us, right? The work of God to make exactly fruitful is already happening in Paul, and that's why this is such a, a that that's what that should be part of our encounter with it. This is what this text is already the fruit of God doing something in Christ. <laughs> that's clever. Yeah, no, that's good. Yeah. Oh wow, man, this has been fun. I love geeking out about the scriptures with you, man. It's been too long. So glad to have you back on. Let's take a quick break and explore some sermon starters. And we're back. Welcome back to Fresh Text. I'm here with my guest, Aaron Perry, and we are looking at Ephesians chapter 1, verse 3 through 14. Now, uh, we're going to explore some sermon starters. I will mention that we use the lectionary as a jumping off point, but of course, these are these are meant to also function as standalone text. So we don't have to link to the season, but I will mention that this will be dropping, uh, during, uh, Christmas week. So this would be, this is the, this is a, this is the epistle text for the second Sunday after Christmas. So, um, we don't have to make Christmas connections because not everybody uses this for sermon prep directly. It's sometimes just for personal edification or for down the road preaching on this text later, perhaps. So don't feel, tied down by that, Aaron, but also at the same time, feel free to make connections if you'd like. But uh, how, how might you go about preaching on on this text and, and any general advice about preaching on on epistles is also welcomed. So you can pick that up wherever you like. Well, maybe maybe what's so I've got family on the on the mind, because uh, my wife is carrying our fourth child and we are expecting this baby Yay. to come the next month or so. And so whenever it is Christmas, we are going to have a, a baby right with us, right? So there's going to be some fittingness uh, to this. And I was thinking about how the the mutual choosing or the covenant of marriage, the choosing of one for the other and of the the other for the one, right? The, this, this mutual commitment, uh, that is what establishes the safety for the children to be chosen as well. That by the choosing of the husband for the wife and the wife for the husband, there's already an automatic choosing of the children that God blesses in that family. And so I'm, I'm thinking like, is there a way that you could use Christmas, this, uh, baby who is hmm. born by God's choosing of Mary? Is there a way that, that, that we could kind of say that, uh, it's like that, uh, that choosing is flipped on its head that in God's choice of this baby, all the all the family is now is now chosen, right? All the family that is gathered in the church, they are chosen because God has has chosen this baby, and it's kind of like flip. Ooh, that's kind of fun. And, and there's a way that that I'm feeling like, man, you could you could play that with some fun, just in the fact that people have come through. There's going to be some kind of awkward conversation at Christmas, right? Like there's right. going to be some strain that people are going to have fairly fresh in their mind or experience, or maybe that they just. Maybe, maybe there's strain and that's what makes this such a tough time. Like Christmas is not mm-hmm. an easy time for a lot of people, but you can really keep, you could, you can get into some of that complexity based on 
the choosing, the choosing, the choosing or the chosenness that people just aren't experiencing their family. And they could, you could preach that as good news in that, in that, uh, strain or anxiety. Or you could, you know, key into some of the humor about some of the awkward conversations that, you know, had some measure of being reconciled and wrapped up before it all got everybody went their own separate ways. You know, there's, there's different ways that you could use that experience of the season, which is still fresh in people's minds through this text and, and key on the theme of election or chosenness. I like the inversion there because that really helps to disrupt a, a kind of a lazy analogy and even a, a very damaging analogy of, yeah, the way a dad loves, that's the way God loves, but better, you know, like that can just be, that can create all kinds of problems on both theologically and ethically, you know? So to introduce the the analogy, but to specify that it's not just that God's better, but it's that it's almost different. It, it links to the hourglass thing and the time issue. It's like this child, it's our God chooses all of us in him, even stretching backward. You know, it's almost like he's choosing Israel. He's choosing his family, you know, uh, he's choosing his body. He's choosing his people. He's choosing all of these as the kind of that which surrounds this sort of central act of choosing. And the choosing us in him is just really, really cool because it does really flip, uh, turn the analogy on its head. Like you say, we, we, you know, choose one another in a marriage. And then out of that flows this choice to, you know, love the child that that generates, right? Yeah, like, Whereas the generativity is so it's inverted, right? It's like, I mean, even in specifically that Mary is chosen her election, which in many ways, she's like this, she's a sort of consummate symbol of both Israel and the church, right? Um, but that, that, that Mary is chosen because her son is chosen, right? Not the other way around. Normally the choice moves forward in chronology and down through the generations. But this text invites us to kind of see how all that's kind of turned on its head in God's ways of working, which then invites us to those. And like you said, for those who do not, for whom family is very painful or very distant, there's greater hope here. To not say, hey, those of you who have a family, of course, you have a better, you, you, you've got this wonderful metaphor that you get to see every day and the rest of you, sorry, bummer. Uh, it can be more of a, no, actually you are, well, actually no, but you, 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 your choosing, you know, comes from the bottom up rather than from the top down or something like that to just kind of play with it. Yeah. It, it, it acknowledges what, what pain there is and that the, the family illustration is, is clear, like at various points through scripture, you can't do away with it, but it, it's, it is an analogy. It's not the, it's not the reality, right? It's the illustration. And so whenever there is a <laughs> breakdown, we go back to what's, what's the, what's the reality. And in this, <laughs> the reality is God's unyielding choice that God, God has chosen and is not That's changing right. his mind. This is, this is not, this is not a choice that God makes in the moment to see whether or not he's going to change his mind later. This is God's choice and it will not be undone to be for us to, uh, lavish all things on us who are in Christ because God loves the Son to, to this extent, right? The God, the, the nature of God is, is not changing. Yeah. And even more radically verse, and yes, it is us who believe, but also just all things, right? Verse 10. Yeah. Uh, as a plan for the fullness of time, which is a reference to what already happened, the fullness of time in Christmas 
to unite all things in him, things in heaven and things on earth, right? So there's a kind of cosmic unity, though, that remains still hidden and is still unfolding um, that's already been accomplished in this little child, you know, and in his death and in his resurrection, yes, right? He'll get to that. Um, but given the season we're in to, to, to focus on that, the, the moment of right. the fullness of time. Yeah. yeah. That, that being, because that links with Galatians, which is the previous, which is last week's text, the first Sunday after Easter, oh, how interesting. which our listeners would have already heard is the Galatians four, the fullness of a time born under a woman born of the law. Right. So the, you see some Christmas connections there with verse 10. Right. Yeah. And, and it's, but cosmic, you know, scope of the sort of uniting and restoring of all things in this little child, you know, it's, uh, you know, that, that the paradox of, of God's enfleshment, the son, the son's enfleshment in Christ. And I'm thinking of the, the paradox of how the, the baby who smiles at the parent is, uh, <laughs> delighting the parent and the parent is the one who has all the power. And yet none of the power when, when the, when the baby is smiling, they, the baby has done something that the, the parent could never do for their, on their own. And the baby has no idea they're doing it, right? There's hmm. this, this kind of, uh, natural ability to delight that babies have. And I think I would, I would keep, uh, maybe that might be a way that you could kind of use this in a, in a Christmas kind of, kind of text or in a Christmas kind of way that keeps us grounded just in the, in the, everydayness of and I'll put it like this if Paul is doing things and describing things in a grand way that doesn't preclude them from being captured in the everydayness of the smile Absolutely. the embrace the the uh the wink right the, these signs of affection for those huh. that we that we choose have chosen and continue to choose and love that that God's uh God's cosmic choice is still uh, can have these these powerful moments in the everydayness of life that we experience with those that we love. Yeah, I mean, even in romance, you know, to be in a to be in a group of people and to have someone look across the room and catch your eye. There's a choosing in that. I'm yeah. choosing to look at you or friends, right? I'm choosing, you know, uh, to go out to Fasoli's with Aaron. Right? <laughs> Um, you know, and that's, and there's all the things we say and do and all those gifts. And that's even something to play on here in the text, right? There's all the gifts that he's pouring on us, but he pours it on us because he's chose us. But the kind of greatest gift of all, or the kind of the gift of gifts is the choosing, choosing us as the recipient of the gifts. So yeah, like one of us can pay for Fazoli's, but the big, that that's, and you say, thanks. Right. But like. The thing that really matter, the the thing that really marks us deep in our heart is that text that says, Hey, you want to get lunch this week? Cause I'm not obliged to do that. I could choose someone else. I could choose other things. It's making someone a priority. And you're right. So giving illustrations of in friendship, in family, in other kind of contexts, romance. I mean, that's the nice thing is to always make sure there's some illustrative variety, you know what I mean? Cause some, some analogies alienate, some analogies are, yep. uh, are helpful. And it's not that you should never use an alienating analogy. It's that 
people need a path into it, right? So if they can see how that one works, that can help them see the truth of the one that maybe didn't resonate. So, wow. Dude, I want to preach on this sermon now. Preach on this sermon. Preach on this text. This is so beautiful. Well, I think that's the natural, I, I think it's the natural outflow of a text like this whenever Paul is preaching, right? He's preaching in it. Yeah. Good preaching makes want, wants people to preach more. Yeah, and that brings us back to the the breathlessness of it, that in many ways you could imagine that part of how this seemingly complex logic and language, how could this possibly just flow from his lips orally while, you know, another's writing things down? Well, this is maybe it's because this is some of the stand this is the themes of his public preaching, right? So these are this is just familiar language for him, you know. And you can go one by one and see a lot of these phrases showing up in other places, right? And so, you know, this is this is just the way he talks and thinks. And so that's why it kind of flows naturally. And the fact that it doesn't for us is partially a difference in culture and time, but also partially a difference of, of attention. What What is it yeah. that we pay attention to? Yeah. Um, hey, but just real quick before we wrap up, do you have any just a general – advice or thoughts we're switching on on preaching epistles we we just started season three now of fresh text we had our hundredth episode a couple weeks ago um thanks big thanks aaron for helping get this started you were right at the beginning you helped name the thing and we launched we launched it we soft launched it on the on the seminary podcast for i think what six seven episodes and now it's just kind of blown up and a lot of people following and celebrating and supporting and all kinds of guests. And now you're not even on that often because it's, there's a big rotation of all these people that were not a part of it at the beginning. And yeah. um, it's like, there's, but first, anyway, sorry, I just like there's first choice, second, second choice. And then yeah. along. <laughs> no, it's not that Aaron. <laughs> I want to respect your time and the burden <laughs> of your schedule. You already have a weekly podcast to worry about. So I'm being, I'm being kind. <laughs> But uh, how kind um, of you not to choose me, John? How kind of you not? To- <laughs> <laughs> I'm choosing that in the fullness of time oh, you'll be on the show. <laughs> but uh, but you know, the first year we focused mostly on gospel readings. Second year we did an OT emphasis, and then now we're going to be focusing more on the epistle readings. So again, if you don't have much to say now, we can save it for another episode. But if if you had any thoughts, I'd love to hear. Just Tips, uh, tricks, uh, warnings, because it is a different kind of preaching than, than narratives. We've been mostly narratives for two years now. What what I would say, John, and this is um, comes to me in my own pastoral experience, is – and you mentioned that Paul kind of talks like this for a number of reasons. And one of the reasons that I found that Paul talks in the way that he does – I mean, I mean even, the, even in this passage uh, – redeemed by redeemed through his blood the forgiveness of sins like like he's consistently seeing the world in these really critical situations and times or if i could put it in uh in johannan language like paul sees that we are like sheep who are in grave danger and and really sees the world in this in these stark ways and there are times when god is gracious to the pastor that we see and sense the the graveness of the world in the lives of our people. And I can remember a time there's a fellow in my office and he's in a critical situation. His life is is falling apart and he's trying to figure out what is God 
doing or or even like like what is happening right when when life is is falling apart and it was a time when we went into some of Paul's teaching on uh being crucified with Christ he had never had clarity on what it means to be crucified with Christ until he was in an excruciating season in his life and then he's like that made so much more sense. It made more sense to him than it did to me in the moment. I was able to provide the language, but man, he was experiencing it. He was living it. And I think that's one of the the best things that, one of the best ways that we can, we can have to preach epistles is to one, familiarize ourselves with them. So we're, we're giving our attention to these texts, but then testing out some of the language and concepts in the lives uh, in the everydayness of pastoral ministry, in the, in the coffee talk, in the, in the, our own home life, in times of, you know, informal pastoral counsel and seeing how these start to provide lenses for people to actually have language for what's going on in their own life. Like when a person is in, is experiencing the real fullness of joy, maybe like a new convert or somebody that is just is filled with joy is like to consider like, they're a person that knows what it's like to have the lavish riches of God poured into their life. It hasn't become old for them. When a person is experiencing just a total alienation and lost, being lost and powerlessness to reflect on the, the redemption through the, the death of Christ, that they know that for something to be made drastically different, for there to be newness in their life, that it's going to come at great cost. And that cost being the life of Christ. Right. We're redeemed by his blood. Like the allow the text to give us lenses and language for the life experiences that our people are going through and then allow the clarity and conviction and excitement and the different visceral reactions that our people have when they hear this language and, and sense these themes. Allow that to be what allows the text to, to be uh, fruit, fruitful and energizing to give us the, the Pauline experience, right? Like, like Paul's experience in the world is what allows him to have this kind of praise. Test out Paul's language in the tough times of life that our people are going through to see, so that the language of Paul can start to bubble up through us. That's what, that's what I've found to be a helpful kind of like existential approach to the epistles whenever I've been in a season of preaching them. And I think God is interested in seeing his word preached. And so if I'm going into the epistles, I'm like, well, I'm going to keep my eyes open for how some of this language and themes just meet the experience of my people over the next several weeks. Well, that's a great general word and a great, great place to end. Thanks so much, Aaron. I mean, yeah, epistle preaching can become, there's a certain kind of expository approach to it that leads them to be some, sometimes the driest kind of preaching, but it's, when it has that existential side to it, it's some of the most powerful preaching is preaching on epistles. And I think you've hinted at uh, at least one really crucial means of grace to uh, enliven uh, preaching on the epistles. So thanks, man. That was, that was really inspiring and moving. I loved hearing you talk about it. <laughs> it was great. Well, thanks so much, Aaron, for giving an hour of your time to studying the word together. Uh, thanks to our listeners, of course, for, for engaging and uh, getting the word out and supporting the show. Thanks to Todd and Eric for their production work. Can't imagine doing this without them. Thanks to Tom Adamson for donating the theme music. And with that said, we say have a good preach and a great week. Bye-bye. <laughs> <laughs>